0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce The Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So
1: we're celebrating an anniversary today. Well, a, a birthday, actually. Yeah, in, in French, the word anniversaire is both birthday and anniversary, because it's a commemoration of a day in a year when something happens. And anyone who's seen the title of this episode knows who we are celebrating today. Keith,
0: Keith. I tweeted him this morning. I was I'm wearing my Who the f is Mick Jagger t shirt today, in observance of the anniversaire.
1: Yep. Where was that t shirt? In in which film or which concert? There's
0: a, a photograph of him probably in the early '70s, um, and he is just standing casually against I don't know a piece of sound equipment or something, and wearing this shirt, and it's it's been a meme ever since. Yeah. But when I I, I had to have one because. Yeah, it lets people know that when you say you're a Rolling Stones fan and you don't care about Mick Jagger, well then you must like Keith Richards. Yeah. And that's the reason I like the Rolling Stones. Can I give I just wanted to tell a really my favorite thing from one of my favorite things from Gimme Shelter that really kind of encapsulates what Keith Richards is about. There's a scene where they're playing at Altamont. And we have a great view of the stage because the camera is backstage looking down on the band. And there's some altercation or some ruckus is going on in front of the stage. And Mick stops the band, attempts to quell the crowd, push the crowd back, that sort of thing. This happens a few times. And each time Mick is like, come on now, everybody. Let's just be peace, cool, love, groovy. Come on now. Back (laughs) off, every brother and sisters and all this stuff. And then it happens again. And Keith grabs the microphone and says, hey, if these cats don't stop beating each other up, We're splitting. (laughs) That, to me, is the difference between Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. It's like Mick is this, you know, kind of, I don't know, what's the word for it, uh, a dilettante.
1: Milk toast.
0: Yeah. And Keith's the real deal. Keith was ready to jump into the fight and whack people over the head with a guitar because you're interrupting the concert, man. Yeah. You cats. So that's one of my favorite stories about Keith. And, and that's kind of how I, I've always thought of him, is that brash guitar player who likes a lot of syncopation.
1: Yeah, yeah. you know. When, when yeah. you think about the Rolling Stones, you don't think guitar hero, because Keith Richards is not a flashy guitarist. He doesn't do fancy solos. He's not a Jerry Garcia. He's not a Jimmy Page, anything like that. But in terms of creating a guitar sound he's probably the best there is.
0: Yeah, I think um, the sound that he helped, that he made up, um, was a synthesis of all this great music from the 50s, and that's the sound that a lot of rock bands covered. Most notably in my own neighborhood, Aerosmith. Aerosmith was constantly compared to the Rolling Stones, and their lead singer and their lead guitar player were compared to the Rolling Stones' lead singer and lead guitar player. And I mean that's just but that's just one example, so many people would say that, yeah, well, Keith Richards is the guy we we want to sound like. We want to have that raunchy sort of guitar and that that you know that rock and roll bass, and then a little more syncopation in it, maybe a little reggae, maybe a little jazz, maybe a little, but you know he he was able to pull all of that together, and I think that's what's that's what makes the Rolling Stones sound the way they do,
1: yeah, he was really interested in. Prolonging the sound of blues and rock and modernizing it and bringing it into you know the electric era of the sixties and the seventies he's often playing acoustic songs in fact I was reading a couple of interviews with him this morning, and he really likes playing acoustic guitar and it's something that not too many electric people play i'm going to put a link in the show notes to a a YouTube interview with Jimmy Fallon just a couple months ago when the new album came out or a couple of weeks ago. And he goes up there with an electric guitar and well, Jimmy kind of sings a couple of things like Mick Jagger, which is pretty sad. But when Keith was explaining very quickly, his technique and is one of the most unique things about him is he often plays with an open tuning and five strings. And he was playing with an acoustic guitar that had a narrower neck and only five tuning pegs. So it was custom made. And, It's an old blues thing to play open tunings, and a lot of blues guitarists played open tunings to play slide guitar, but many of them also played other types of guitar. And he adopted that, and I don't think he used it all the time, but he uses it most of the time. And this creates a unique sound because you can play a lot of open chords, either the open D or E, which is what he usually uses, or using a capo to play, say, an open G or A, and it gives... Open chords give a spacious sound to the guitar.
0: Yeah, there's more one and fives uh, placed in convenient places when you tune that way. It's very, it gives you a lot of options to go from minor to major. It gives you a lot of opportunities to play the fourths and the sixths because of the way the fingerings work later. So it's it's a great way to play, especially if you're a field worker and you don't know how to play the guitar, Sure, And, you know, you just tune it open and you say, well, you play this, you play the one, you play the four, then you play the five. And that's all you got to do is count. Um, And so you just play it right across. And then, but, you know, adding stuff to that was what makes it interesting. And that's what Keith found interesting about it is that with that different sound, that kind of inspired him to write the, the, the variety of, as we call them, riffs, but... You know these melodic funk lines that he that he comes up with um i i I'm sure that it's a lot of the reason that it sounds that way is because of the open tunings
1: yeah he he was the king of the riff, and I went back and listened to some of the you know the the records by the Rolling Stones in that three four year period where they really cooked and especially exile on Main Street out of seventeen tracks, fourteen tracks open with guitar either an acoustic intro or an electric riff. There are only three tracks that don't. And when you think about one of them opens with piano and one with a chorus, but then the guitar comes in, and that's like the signature of the Rolling Stones. None of these slow intros into songs, most of the time, you know, they do have some, you can't always get what you want, you know, with the choir and all that, but they often start with a riff and it's like the car taking off in second gear and not first gear, you know, they're just ready to roll.
0: You know, it's interesting, and now I've been thinking about that, the, the riff thing, and I, is Satisfaction the first time that he hit pay dirt with a riff? I mean, that's apparently, the legend is, is that he thought of it at night, he recorded it on cassette, and then someone suggested he used the fuzz tone on it, and the rest is history. And it was, what a crummy fuzz tone that is, too, by the way, may I say. that is just, I've heard it isolated, and it's just the most primitive sort of fuzz tone. But it seemed to me that it's like, well... That was easy to write that song. All I had to do was come up with the dun 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 dun, you know, and that's it. So I think later on he he realized that that's that's a good way of 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 starting a song was would just come up with a cool little riff. I mean, not that other people weren't doing that too, but for him, it 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 was better than Ruby Tuesday, right? Which was like it did you know, which was yeah, you know, yeah, in my opinion, kind of crappy, but wasn't rock and roll
1: it was of its time the wikipedia article about satisfaction says the song's success boosted sales of the gibson fuzz box so that the entire available stock sold out by the end of 1965 but in another interview later so apparently he has somewhere between a thousand and three thousand guitars and in an interview in guitar world magazine he talks about how guitarists are all into pedals and he just wants a guitar and an amp and he can make it sound the way he wants and that's true when you see guitarists with this bank of pedals in front of them or Robert Fripp with his rig to his side, right? It's like you're divorcing yourself from the purity of the music. You you're you're creating a a, a mechanical thing. For the sound, instead of trusting yourself to make the sound, yes, you've got a thousand guitars. You pick the right guitar because all guitars sound different. Well, a lot of guitars sound different.
0: Yeah, or they have different purposes. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. He liked that raw. Plug the guitar into a Fender Twin Reverb and just distort it the way you would do it. Just you know, bring it. Well, I don't have to tell people how to do it. But you yeah. can you can make dis- your own distortion. And you know, I think, and also the way you, with the way you use your plectrum, and the way you finger things is also all, all part of that too. But yeah, he, he liked that sound. I think it's because he was such an, he was so enamored of Chuck Berry, who also played that way. Chuck Berry would never use a wah wah pedal or a fuzz tone. That's just.
1: But did they, did they have them back then? Well,
0: no, of course not.
1: Yeah, so maybe he would have.
0: Well, you know, maybe, but he didn't. And I think that's, it's like saying, do you want to play ragtime music on an electric piano or do you want to play it on an acoustic piano? It's like, well, of course, I want it on the on the most original thing to the, uh, to the moment of, of conception. So if you want to play like Chuck Berry, you've got to play like Chuck Berry. And that includes the kind of equipment he used. It. Yeah.
1: So he's best known for using A Fender Telecaster, nineteen fifty-three. That he's named Micawber after a Dickens character, and that's the one you see an awful lot. And so, Wikipedia is saying that the neck pickup has been replaced with a something something pickup. The bridge has been replaced with the a Fender lap steel pickup. That's interesting. And this is one of the this this is one of the guitars that gives him that signature sound.
0: Yeah, I like the. I didn't know about the lap steel pickup because, well, I don't know how they're built, but they. They're definitely janglier than yeah. a, a, a guitar, a regular guitar pickup would be, which would be a much more, not jangly anyways. So um, that's interesting. Yeah. I'd like, to, I'd like to borrow his guitar for a week if, I, if it's possible.
1: <laughs> Another thing I read that's interesting is he reads a lot and he has lots of books and he got some professional training on how to organize his library. And he started with the Dewey Decimal System and then he gave up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds like such a key thing. I don't see him as a big reader. But, you know, he's, he's never shied away from telling how he was a heroin addict in the 70s and all that. And we amaze ourselves every year that he's still alive after so many other rock musicians have died of drugs and other things. And he, in one interview, he's saying he didn't really do heroin when he was on tour. So he figured he could just stop when he wanted. He didn't want the hassle of trying to buy heroin on tour in different countries and, and all that. And that makes sense.
0: <laughs> I guess so. In a, in a twisted kind of way, it does make sense.
1: Well but if you can if he wasn't that addicted that he could stop, that's you know I you know,
0: I think one of the things that we have to deal with is that for a, a really long time the Rolling Stones have been uh marketed to us as people and we don't we don't really know what they're really like from like every time I find out that Mick Jagger is this sort of guy who wants to you know, be artsy-fartsy. I'm like, what? That's not rock and roll.
1: They both went to art school. I don't know how many of the other original, I don't know how many of the other original Rolling Stones did, but that's where they met.
0: Yeah, they're fairly intelligent middle-class fellows.
1: No, but they went to art school. They didn't go to normal university. They were interested in art, whatever art it was back then that interested them, you know, in the 1960s. But they do have that background. Yeah. And- But
0: the point I was going to make is that they have a, a reputation that has been shaped by marketing by their PR and you know, bad boys, greatest rock and roll band of the world, things like that. They have to maintain that. They can't ever let that down. And so you yeah. you I wonder what they what they're really like. And my favorite documentary with Keith in it is I think it's called Under the Influence. Is that the one? The Netflix the Netflix one where he
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was made right.
0: in I don't know, ten years ago.
1: Ten years ago, and it yeah. just kind
0: of follows him around. I guess he's on tour or something like that. But yeah. the part I liked was when he was—he would make these comments about things all through it, and just—and this laugh, that hearty laugh after everything he says. And he's just, you know, he's just a regular. He's he's yeah. a he's a regular yob, is what he is. You know, he's just a regular guy. <laughs> uh, but he's not this. Uh, he's not he's not the guy that was going to jump into the crowd in Altamont. He's just a
1: you know regular yeah. guy. Not anymore. Well, he has, if if I can find the thing where his homes are, he owns a Sussex estate that he purchased in 1966. And that's interesting because all those guys, whether it was the Rolling Stones or King Crimson or Yes or the Moody Blues, they all bought these country estates really quickly. They They were aspirational toward the upper-class English type life, even if they were... So he owns an estate in Sussex. He has homes in Western Connecticut and in the private resort island of Parrot Cay, Turks and Caicos. So he's not a regular guy.
0: He lives in Connecticut. Where do you, he lives in Connecticut. That's just kind of yeah, weird. Yeah, but that's you know? where all Whiskey, the, Twitter, where all the
1: big hedge funds are. There's a lot of money up there in Connecticut. I, I, it's next door. I
0: mean, it's just, to me, it's like yeah. it's a suburban state, and it's, it's just kind of weird. That, Mick
1: Jagger has long had a house in France in a small town near Amboise on the Loire River. And for a while, I worked with someone who lived in the same village, and he would often walk through the market on Saturday. People wouldn't bother him because he was their local guy and they knew, you know, he'd say hello to people and they'd say hello to him. And probably it's the same with Keith Richards, though he's kind of scary. You wouldn't want him giving out, (laughs) you know, candies on Halloween or something for Trick or Treat.
0: Well, see what I mean? It's like your reputation is he's, he's scary, but he's not scary. He's just a guy who likes to play tunes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what well, I do. What's interesting is how clear it is that Mick and Keith don't get along. And Keith said it in his book, and I think Mick said it several times, and they say it in interviews. And we're presented with these people who are musicians and who are friends. All the photos of the four of them with their arms around their, each other's shoulders all laughing and smiling, they're a business. They learned a long time ago. Unlike all these prog rock bands that broke up and reformed with new names that sounded like accounting firms. They realized, probably in the 70s, when they left England, that they were going to make money if they kept their act together and acted as a business. And since then, they have been extremely professional. They probably enjoy touring. They probably don't spend much time together outside of rehearsal and touring and photo shoots. Each one has his own limousine to go to his private hotel suite, and they don't have parties backstage anymore and and all that. But they're not friends. They're just people who work together. And in some ways, that's the way. That's the way all rock bands are. You can't expect them to be friends.
0: Well, that's the way husbands and wives are too. I mean, that's just you know. After a while, it's just well, yeah. Just keep it swinging just until well, it's to the very end. But of course, I think as a business concern, they've done pretty well. I I think it's interesting you mentioned the business of it. I know we're supposed to be celebrating Keith, but. Uh, Left sets had an interesting observation recently about the way these old rockers, quote unquote, market themselves. Now they think they just all they have to do is say it's here, and then people are going to buy it. And then they say, okay, campaign's over. Now let's go back to France. Let's go back to our. Let's go back to Connecticut. And they it, that doesn't work that way anymore. They have to be a constant presence. They have if they think they're going to, you know, dominate anything. They have to be around for a while. And I'm really surprised because I think the latest record is, is accessible to some degree. I mean, it's it's a Rolling Stones record. They only come out once every seven years or so, right? So worth listening to.
1: Oh, it's been more than—original tunes, it's been more than that. But I, I think what's important is that they realized, like Pink Floyd, you know— Acrimony broke up, collapsed, and all that. And the Rolling Stones kind of realized that they'd probably seen all the other bands that had broke up, and they probably realized that, you know, we've got a good thing going here. And knowing that if they did break up, sure, they could live off the old catalog, but they wouldn't be able to buy new mansions, you know, from the old royalties. And and I think they just were efficient. And I think it's Mick Jagger who really took control of the business, and Keith says that a couple of times. But it allowed them to be, instead of a group of yobs just playing rock tunes they have a level of professionalism that is quite i mean they've it's been decades right but they do it really well they they spend money on making their stage sets look really fancy and their tours fancy and i mean you pay for it in the ticket prices but they're not going to disappoint people at concerts Right? They're going to make a good show. They're going to look like they're friends. They're going to make some records. And, you know, it's a business.
0: It's only rock and roll. One of the things I think that I'm disappointed by, though, is that because they are a manufactured group now, they haven't really done anything new or innovative. uh, And we complain about that all the time. They haven't done anything special. Everything they do has to you know hit hit the market and and be sellable it can't be experimental it can't be well let's try this it has to be pretty much the same as the, the the current album sounds a lot like the album before it which sounds a lot like the album before it. it's like they stamp them out you know um which is fine if you're a rolling stones fan yeah. i mean even as a stones fan i'm still i'm on the positive side of the latest album i'm not 100 percent on it but you know it's fun to hear it's the, the yeah. good that they can still crank stuff out. Stuff sounds good. It's produced well. But it's not It's not Exile on Main Street. It's not Beggar's Banquet. It's not Let It Bleed. I know every Old Stones fan says that. It's not Sticky Fingers again. I don't know why they won't try it. It's certainly, well, they got nothing to lose. I think individually they've put out stuff. For instance, if you're familiar, I don't think you're that familiar with Keith's solo stuff. But he's got like... Th-
1: I listened to some over the weekend. I don't really like it that much. Yeah,
0: it's a, some of it is okay. Some of it is, well, no wonder Mick Jagger didn't want to record that, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, but there's a live album that sounds really poor where his voice is really distant, it's echoey. It's, they shouldn't have released that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm a little disappointed in that, but at least you get to see what direction the Stones might have gone in if they did what he did. I don't think his solo albums are meant to be stamped out. I think that they, they're they the kind of music that he wanted to play. He has great people playing with him, too. So the bands are great. Yeah. It was more or less just for fun, I think. Same thing with Mick Jagger. His solo albums are not great. They, no. And I don't know why that is.
1: But they know that they're not going to make much money from them. They're doing it to pass the time. I, I hate to say it. And that's been the case for a lot of these rock musicians. They wanted, They want to make music... But they just don't they don't know how to make it like they used to. I think we, we did an episode a while ago. Most bands go through three or four years, which is their peak. And after that, it's over because they can't find that original motivation that they had because so many things have happened. And it's very rare that a musician like Bob Dylan can recreate himself every decade or so with a totally new sound. Very few artists can do that. And it's not bad. I, I always say that, the, the Rolling Stones are the best Rolling Stones tribute band out there. They're playing oldies now that they have a new album. They're playing some of the new songs on tour, I'm sure. But they're playing the songs that people like, and there's nothing wrong with that.
0: No, I don't have a problem with it at all. I, it, fine. But it's not my cup of tea. It's not what I want to go see. I want to go see them in 1969. <laughs> you know, mm, you
1: want a time machine. Yeah, I want a time yeah.
0: machine. But that's the way it goes. You know, know and Ke- Keith is also, on, has guested on quite a number of records and produced some records yeah. too. And yeah. I had forgotten to look into that. I, I looked that up over the weekend and I, I don't have time to listen to all of these cuts that he's on, but he's on the Tom Waits album. He's on a lot of reggae albums. He's produced reggae. I mean, he's, he's really done a lot behind the scenes. Willie Nelson, he's uh, apparently Willie Nelson is having this big 90th birthday celebration and Keith's going to be there. That's right. And, uh, he's done a couple of Willie Nelson things too. He's been on a couple of, of Nelson's albums. So, I mean, the guy's taste is all over the place. That's what I like, you know, and I, 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 and I got to lodge my complaint about Keith's ability to write great country music. And then Mick Jagger comes in and writes stupid lyrics on top of them. I, that, uh, that is so disappointing. With few exceptions, but some of the great country things—those Graham Parsons-inspired songs that that Keith has written—and um, all of their country, dead flowers, and you know any number of other ones, uh, Sweet virginia They're mm. just those could be great songs. But instead, they're kind of like jokey songs, and I don't. Yeah, I yeah. don't like
1: that. Uh, I'm just looking at the list of guest appearances in the studio, and it starts. Well, it starts with Billy Preston in 69, but then Peter Tosh, Tom Waits, Aretha Franklin, Ziggy Marley, John Lee Hooker, Bobby Womack, George Jones, Marion Faithful, the Chieftains. It's almost as if he was generous to say, sure, I'll play on your record. Because in in a way, it's a gift to have a musician like that play on your record when you're, you know, okay, Lee Scratch Perry is well known, but... You know that sort of connection there is quite important.
0: Yeah, I think, and his enthusiasm to want to play with those people. Um, I mean, you just don't say, "Okay, he's not a session guy." He doesn't get. He gets a chance to say no uh, if somebody asks him. So uh, you know, I, I I I think it's really admirable to see the kind of music that he really enjoys, and it, a lot of it is reggae and that old that old rock and roll, the rock steady, the um, you know ska music he likes, all of that. Um, and, of course, blues.
1: What I would really like, Bob Dylan did this thing called Theme Time Radio Hour. And I think there were 100 episodes, two hours each, and he would pick a theme, coffee, sleep, travel, whiskey, whatever, and find a whole bunch of old songs that he really liked, and he'd he'd give an intro talking about the song. And, and it was like, I'd love to see Keith do something like that. Maybe not 100 episodes, but give us this chance to listen to all the great music that you've got in your – lp and cd library and talk to us about it
0: that would be a terrific thing that, i would really enjoy that because i'd really love his take on some of this older stuff it, which reminds me there's a great scene in hail hail rock and roll where he's playing with uh, it's rehearsal in a concert with chuck berry and chuck berry corrects him angrily on how he is playing the riff wrong, which is, I think it's an intro to Carol or a Little Queenie or some, or back in the, one of the, some Chuck Berry song, and they all they all have these intricate sort of intros, and Keith had been playing it wrong the whole time that he's ever played it. It was one of the Stone songs, and so so Chuck has to keep stopping and telling him, "No, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it. No, 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 Keith. <laughs> That's really something to see your my idol." being yelled at by his idol to he's playing it wrong yeah but that's how you learn right
1: well long live keith we've always wondered how he's managed to stay alive so long unfortunately you won't hear this episode for a couple of weeks so he's more than 80 now we just since we were recording on this day and it was his anniversary his birthday anniversary we decided that we would do this so it'll in fact christmas will have passed when this comes out the 5th of january so happy new year everyone
0: oh Sure. Have one. Have a happy new year.
1: Okay, I've got an extract pick. Talking about old musicians making new music, Peter Gabriel has a new album called I-O, I slash O. And according to Wikipedia and the press information, he's been working on this since 2002. Whenever I hear someone, I I know someone who's a science fiction author, and he had a long period between novels. And I remember when one of his novels came out, it was touted, as took him seven years to write this novel. It actually took him seven years to find a publisher willing to buy it. It's that sort of thing. So why Peter Gabriel spent more than 20 years on an album, I don't know. He's been doing all sorts of things. He's been touring. He was involved in many, many projects during this time. It's not like he wasn't doing anything, but it kind of, why did he, if he really wanted to make new music, he should have just made new music. The takeaway for me is a lot of the songs sound like Peter Gabriel from the 80s, right? They don't sound that different, just like the new Stones album sounds like the Stones from the 70s. There are some nice tunes. There are rocky tunes. There are tunes with piano. There are mellow tunes. The one thing I notice is his voice is really good. If you've ever seen him perform Here Come the Flood Live, and, and I'll find a, a YouTube video to link to in the show notes, he drops down an octave at the end of that phrase where he used to go up to to hit the high note. Because he's old, right? He's Your know, voice changes. I'm not saying that he's getting to the same notes on this recording, but he his voice sounds really comfortable all across the range. And that's something to say for someone who's, well, he's not quite as old as Keith Richards. He's 73, but that's pretty good. I mean, Keith Richards' voice, you know, it's been raspy since forever. So the thing about I.O. is there are two versions. There is the dark side mix and the bright side mix. And this is really confusing. When you go on Apple Music, you hear one after the other. I don't want to sit down and compare the songs and say, which is better. Just give me the music that you think is good. Don't give me two alternatives, right? I find that a bit of a, I find it trickery. I find it like he's not confident in what he wanted to do. So he made two mixes. Anyway, it's worth a couple of listens. I don't think it'll be on rotation in my library, but as a Peter Gabriel friend from back in the day, check it out. I.O. by Peter Gabriel. Doug, what have you got?
0: What have I got? I got a tinge... Of nostalgia when someone on one of the social media sites posted a picture of three icons, I thought, Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees, Pauline Black of The Selector, and Polystyrene of X Ray Specs. And I'm like, you know who I haven't listened to in a long time? X Ray Specs. Now, let me tell you, back in the day when I was doing college radio, X Ray Specs was just another punk band out of. The UK. There were so many. I mean, it was 999 and the Buzzcocks and Susie Sue and the Damned and the Vibrators and the Rosillos and all these bands. I can't keep them straight at all, <laughs> but I did happen to go and look up their album called Germ Free Adolescence. And there are a couple of songs on the album that I remember identity and the day the world turned Dayglow." The rest of them, I don't know, but polystyrene is one of those musicians who literally saw the Sex Pistols and said, I can do that. And so she did. She put together a, a punk band. Their great contribution, besides herself, besides polystyrene, is that they had a sax player in the band, which kind of made them a little bit different. It added an interesting perspective to the sound. But still, they played punky. And she was able, she took lessons from John Lydon. She was able to find that discordant note that just rides above all the chords in the song and just shout out the lyrics at that. Really great sounding stuff. At least the two songs that I remember, I'm going to try to recall the rest of them as I listen to Germ-Free Adolescence from X-Ray Specs. It's my next track. This was episode number 272 of The Next Track. Thank you for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit TheNextTrack.com. And we hope you'll support The Next Track by making a regular donation via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so we really depend on the listener support of our Patreon patrons. keeps us going. Visit Patreon.com slash The Next Track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thank you again. We'll talk to you next time.